0: The path to reconciliation is one of listening, learning and growing together, a path that recognises the central place of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in our past and in our future. It is in that spirit that we acknowledge the traditional owners of the land and pay tribute to Elders past, present and future.
1: Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy issues facing Australia and the world. Policy Forum is produced by the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. I'm Anna Greta Hunter. I'm a cardiologist and physician, and it is fantastic to be in the studio again today with my co-host, Sharon Bessel. Sharon, how are you? Hi,
0: Anna Greta. I am well. I'm feeling very buoyed after that fantastic event on the weekend, which was the walk the yes 23 that was an amazing thing to be part of
1: absolutely and listeners i know many of you are thinking like we are about the upcoming referendum and what we can do to make sure that we have inclusive and respectful conversations at this time it remains a real source of interest and uh, significance for us and it's an issue that we're going to come back to in the next few weeks but today we're talking about a favorite topic of mine sharon what are your thoughts on today's discussion
0: This is a conversation that I'm really looking forward to, Ana Greta, and I know you're going to have a lot to contribute to this conversation as well. Australia's relationship with fossil fuel production dates back to the late 19th century when oil was first discovered in small quantities and then coal in larger quantities and then gas. The oil and gas industries have played a significant role in Australia's economic growth, contributing to jobs, to exports and to government revenue. Our domestic production of coal and gas has underpinned our energy security, reducing our reliance on imports. Around the world, Australian coal and gas make a significant contribution to energy supplies. And today, of course, our lifestyles and our economies are built around energy. But oil and gas extraction impacts on the environment through pollution, through habitat destruction, from which recovery and restoration is is really complex and often very, very difficult. These industries often operate on Indigenous lands, leading to damage and to often very painful land rights conflicts. The fossil fuel industry is also a major driver of greenhouse gas emissions and resultant climate change. The politics are complex, balancing local and global needs for energy, the needs of the economy against the resultant environmental and climate impacts. In the centre of this balance is human health and well-being, dependent on energy, but adversely impacted by fossil fuel extraction, processing, and by climate change. This is a really complex mix, and today we're going to start to unpack some of those issues with two esteemed health voices who are joining us to talk through the health impacts of fossil fuel extraction both the direct impacts and through climate change. Anna Greta, would you like to introduce the two amazing guests that we have joining us today?
1: Absolutely. And I can't tell you how much I've been looking forward to having my two colleagues and friends on today's podcast. And I should make that declaration up front that these are two women for whom I have an immense amount of respect Firstly, we have Melissa Haswell, who's a Professor of Practice of Environmental Wellbeing in the Deputy Vice-Chancellor, Indigenous Strategy and Services Portfolio, and the Honorary Professor in the School of Geosciences at the University of Sydney. She's also a Professor and former Discipline Lead of Health, Safety and Environment in the School of Public Health at Queensland University of
2: Technology. Melissa, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you very much, Anna Greta, and thank you, Sharon.
1: And beside Melissa is Hilary Bambrick, who's of course a professor and director of the National Centre for Epidemiology and Population Health here at the Australian National University in Canberra. Hilary is an environmental epidemiologist, a bioanthropologist who's been researching the health impacts of climate change, particularly on more vulnerable populations. And she carries expertise in the development, implementation and evaluation of adaptation strategies. It's great to have you with us too, Hilary. Thank you for
3: joining us. Thanks, Anna Greta. Hello, Sharon and Melissa.
1: So it is wonderful to have you both with us today for today's discussion. And I'd like to start with a fairly large question to you, Melissa. Today's conversation has so many points of origin, uh, but in particular, some of our listeners may be aware that there was a group of Northern Territory pediatricians who recently took their concerns about gas fracking and gas processing to Canberra highlighting to as many politicians as would listen what health concerns arise directly from fracking and processing, particularly around projects that are proposed in the Beetaloo Basin and the Middle Arm Precinct in Darwin. Melissa, this has been a serious area of research for you over the past few years, and along with Jacob Hedges and Professor David Shearman, you've just completed quite a remarkable synthesis report of the global data regarding the health impacts. I'm wondering if you can describe to our listeners what's in your report. What do we understand about the health impacts of gas and oil mining?
2: Yeah, thanks very much for that question, Arna Greta. It's a big one. <laughs> and I like to kind of think about this from the point of view of really basic human needs, the things that we need to live a healthy life, because this industry is very complex. It's very, um, has many, many steps, and there are many, many concerns all along the way about our, those things that we can call our basic human needs, like what, clean water, clean air, our social relationships, and our health. So the report tries to tell the whole picture, because I, I often think you shouldn't just take a slice of it, because right next to that slice is a whole, whole other area that is very serious. And so the report basically starts by talking about the multiple steps that are involved. It's a, There are many, many steps. Each of the steps poses risks to biodiversity, water, and air, including water usage as well as water contamination. And so we're, that, that is sort of giving the reader a really good picture of just how Intensive this industry is. There's huge industrialization. There can be people can think only about it's one well, but that one well grows to two and ten and up to hundreds and thousands. So all of these activities are happening repeatedly in a region, and when uh, very much impacting the people who are living nearby. Um, It also talks through the chemicals that are known to be not just added to the wells during uh, gas production, but also a myriad of chemicals that have been sitting on the shale uh, or the coal seam for up to millions of years. So they're a very, very complex mixture of potentially harmful chemicals. We know from the United States they do get into the water, they do get into the air. Over there they have uh, 900,000 producing wells uh, right now uh, so it really does proliferate and then uh, it looks at the um, direct uh, it looks at climate change impacts and when we hear things like gas is cleaner than coal the evidence doesn't support that <laughs> And we know we're in quite a climate emergency and we don't have much time to see our fossil fuel use plummet. And then finally, there's a section on the impacts that have been uh, explored in different research. There's a very large body of research now uh, on physical health impacts, on de- the impacts on developing fetuses in the mother's womb, even before birth. Um, and then there's impacts on the social fabric of communities, uh, psychosocial impacts, mental health impacts. And then we know there are impacts on Aboriginal communities for the myriad of reasons I'm talking, but also because there's often very, very uh, allegedly very poor uh, communication with communities to understand what this is. Uh, And then finally, it talks about women and the safety of women and children with uh, massive numbers of truck movements and fly-in, fly-out workers.
0: It's a fairly confronting story to to hear all of those impacts. Hilary, I'd love to hear your reactions to, to the report and to what Melissa's just outlined for us.
3: Thanks, Sharon. Look, it's a, it is a fantastic report and in, extraordinarily comprehensive. And I really commend Melissa and her co-authors for the in, you know intensive work that uh, she's put into this, and to to the fact that it really brings to the fore the fact that there's no stage of the process of exploration and extraction and burning of fossil fuels which is actually safe for human health. And what Melissa's report does is look at this in terms of um, oil and unconventional gas extraction, but we've actually known for a long time that coal mining also has similar problems as well. So you might be looking at, you know, the, the communities surrounding coal mines that get covered in dust. I believe the figures, the estimates for the Hunter region, for example, is 42 million kilograms of coal dust distributed over the region. Uh, you know, that not only wreaks havoc on people's, you know, nice clean washing that they've hung out, but also on on their lungs and on the and on their health so you know estimates in australia are that you know there's around 3000 deaths caused by air pollution Every year, uh, the majority of those are caused by particulate pollution and the majority of that comes from things like coal dust. So it's it's not new in the sense that we know that fossil fuels are bad for us directly in their extraction and their use. But what Melissa's report really does is is flesh this out for the areas which are still really being developed um, in Australia. You know, we're still being told in some quarters that, that gas is a fantastic trans- transition fuel for example whereas you know 30 years ago that might have been the case but that ship really sailed a long time ago you know we should not still be looking at um, developing new gas projects in, in Australia.
0: And Greta I would love to invite you in to give your reflections I, I, I know that you're meant to be on the, the the asking the question side of the mic today but this is an area that you've done a lot of work in what, what's your response to mm. Melissa's report and to, to what we're hearing?
1: Look, it's almost, uh, it's impossible to add a lot to what's already been said by these two amazing guests, but I guess I would probably reflect quite deeply on the process of engagement from these paediatricians in the Northern Territory. It was almost all of the paediatricians in the Northern Territory who've signalled concern around the gas fracking process in the Beedaloo Basin. Um, That's unusual for a group of doctors to come together. They're not part of an activist organisation. But what they are signalling is a really profound concern about the health of the communities that they care for, the children that they care for, the mothers that they care for, the fathers that they care for, the older people that they care for as part of those community structures. They're worried about the direct health impacts, the sorts of childhood diseases that we know will occur with more frequency when people are exposed to the air pollution, particularly around Gas fracking, uh, and they're particularly concerned about the longer term impacts of climate change. I suspect that some of the people listening to this podcast today and over the weekend might be reflecting on some of the temperatures we've seen across the east coast of Australia this week. And I know that talking and working with friends and colleagues in in the Northern Territory, in Darwin, particularly. Uh, that temperature rise is front of mind for so many people in that community. It's one of the most climate vulnerable parts of the Australian landscape. And so in that community, the healthcare practitioners are so acutely aware that climate changes the health and well-being of those communities. It is one of the most significant threats that's faced for the health and well-being of our population across Australia. And I think being able to tie these elements together of the industrial basis of gas extraction, why we do it, why we've done it for such a long time, what role energy plays in our system, but then what are the impacts for both environmental health, for biodiversity, for the plants and the animals that we care about and for our own health and well-being. This is extraordinary. Really important work,
0: Hilary. You mentioned you know the, the impacts on not just the washing but people's lungs of of living in in coal mining areas. How much do communities know about these impacts, and what do communities need to know about the research that we're talking about?
3: Yeah, look, Sharon, that's a great question because um, you know having uh, previously lived in a, in a coal producing area myself in the Illawarra and. You know actually seeing the coal dust on my house one one of the one of the simple things that could be done for example is to actually cover the coal trucks on the back of the trains as they move through these communities because that's where the coal dust is flying you know flying all over the place from certainly uh, near where I was living but those are the sorts of you know it's considered a cost it's it's inefficient it would cost more money to cover cover those trucks so that you don't have these open trains of coal just you know cruising cruising through and getting blown around. Um, so I think people people can see see things like that on their houses but don't necessarily make the connection that they're actually also breathing it in that it's in the air it's not just something that sits on the surface of the the objects that they touch it's in the air um, that they're breathing so you know there, there might be some growing awareness of that but there's also you know very powerful um, and you know wealthy sort of you know coal coal mining uh, uh, CEOs and so on that it would impact their profit bottom line if they were required to cover the cover the trucks. So unless there's some kind of concerted campaign uh, to do something that seems like I mean to me it seems like a no brainer to, to be able to you know actually just stop that coal um, flying around the community and that from just the transportation of coal. But obviously there's, you know, we, we've also seen other, you know, quite catastrophic events, which you think would also bring this to the fore, like the Hazelwood Mine fire a number of years ago, which, you know, had direct impacts on on a number of people. I can't remember the exact estimates, but I think it was um, estimated that around about 30 people were directly um, affected by that in terms of um, serious health outcomes, but we don't know what the long term impacts of that sort of thing is either. So, you know, these are communities which have been built up around coal mining areas, but they've actually got much more to offer than than coal. And I think that that is something that is being. Is being seen, is being explored. I know, you know, certainly in the Hunter region, um, sort of in transitioning away and sort of into, you know, other things, other industries, uh, you know, tourism, for example. Um, And the Illawarra could certainly do the same kind of thing as well. It's one of the most beautiful places. On, you know, in Australia, as far as I'm concerned, but very much spoiled by by the coal mining that um, on which it was initially built. So I think it's time to say thank you, coal. You've done your job, you know, for the economy, and it's very much time to to move on.
0: Melissa, your your work focuses on disease and the, the health impacts of fossil fuels, but but you also do work with with communities, and a lot of your works paid particular attention to the spiritual and the cultural harms that threaten Indigenous Australians through those those processes of the acquisition and the processing of fossil fuels. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what role you think the government needs to take, both perhaps through regulation and preventing some of the behaviours that we see, but also in terms of opening up those pathways forward for communities in terms of of, of alternative opportunities,
2: and yeah, that's a really interesting question because I I presented at the what's called the Pepper Inquiry for the Northern Territory. It was the fracking inquiry for the Northern Territory that Justice Pepper had led. The kind of that was the history of where we are today. Um, and in my presentation to the panel, um, I had an hour long presentation. <laughs> And I told them about the research that had been done up to about 2017. I think it was about five years ago now. It's very outdated now, I'll just say, before I go further, because there's so much research between that point in time and 2023, and the studies have just exploded in terms of health impacts. But I was asked a question in uh, uh, in that presentation about, you know, they thought that one of the reasons why they wanted to go forward with things like the Beetaloo Basin was to provide more jobs for Aboriginal people, local Aboriginal people in the areas because they they were aware of how, what word do I want to say, not very good were the living conditions there, the housing, the, the those yeah, I think yeah there's not really words to say what people have to tolerate living in the northern in the remote northern territory and it was such an unrealistic idea that suddenly this um very complex and not very many jobs uh industry was going to come in and and change all that i think that What they heard in the PEPPER inquiry from Aboriginal communities when they did go out and listen was that they did not want it. They did not want to see their country littered with gas wells. They did not want to see this pollution occur. They didn't want their water to be contaminated. They didn't want their children to be affected. And they didn't want the stress. Uh, When you look at, at communities that become... Uh, in the way of gas fields, it is an extraordinarily stressful situation. And yet the PEPPER inquiry went ahead and said, well, we can make this safe by 135 recommendations, etc." I think that people don't hear what they, you know, when they don't want to hear something, they don't hear it. Because I think particularly communities around the Beetaloo Basin, the, Native title holders say very clearly and loudly that they do not want it. So the idea that it's going to make life better, I don't think there's any evidence anywhere in all the communities in the United States and other countries that life became better after the first couple of years where there were some more jobs. Some people benefited from that. Other people were just devastated by the the changes of their community the trucks, the, the whole aspect of that, and particularly the the, dis, the loss of their place. Um, there's some very, very poignant research just showing how people just feel so useless, like they are in a sacrifice zone. Um, and we can only imagine what that would be for uh, in the Beetaloo Basin. It just, yeah. What can you do with an industry that is so invasive that is so sprawling, that just grows and grows, and the people that come in, that the, the mobile workforce, how can you make that safe? I, 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 I don't think you can. Safe to people's physical, mental health, spiritual, social, etc.
1: I have to say that was one of the most powerful parts of the report, Melissa, and you've you've just. Um, described it in, in a beautiful way, but but listening and thinking about the psychological and the, the social impacts of gas fracking and solastalgia, which might be a term some of our listeners are familiar with, that change of landscape associated with things like climate change. Solastalgia doesn't seem adequate to explain what happens to a landscape when it changes from a natural environment to an industrial precinct. Uh, And thank you, Melissa, for reminding us of the benefits of listening, particularly listening to communities and particularly listening to First Nations voices in this year. Hilary, we've covered some of these direct health impacts, the psychological, the social, the spiritual and the sorts of diseases that we see in response to fossil fuel mining. I'd like to, to look more broadly to the indirect health impacts. Projects like the shale gas fracking that's been proposed for the Beedaloo Basin offer an extraordinary increase in Australia's contributions to global greenhouse gas emissions. It's an increase in our carbon footprint potentially from from that geographic area of around 20%. And of course, this plays a role in the global changing climate. Hilary, what are the health impacts of climate change?
3: Thanks, Anna Greta. Just before I jump into that, I'll just offer a, a quick correction to my uh, comment before on Hazelwood. So the estimate was around 11 people, uh, would, you know, died as a direct result of the fire, uh, which burned for 45 days. Um, just a reminder for people who who, um, who don't remember that event, but um, but just the, the widespread uh, health impacts and devastation on that community, and the the fear um, if we go, if we're thinking about the psychosocial impacts of not knowing the, what the long term health effects are going to be for those people who survived. So to answer, answer your current question, Anna Greta, Um. so the, the health impacts of, uh, of climate change are, are varied, you know, and, uh, you know, if we're thinking about, again, sort of, you know, these are things that we can see playing out now already. So I've been working in uh, climate change and health for around 25 years and we used to talk about, we, we, we used to project what we thought might happen in the 2020s, which seemed so far away at, um, at that time. And I have to say we were, you know, we were actually uh, very conservative in our estimates about what might be going on in the 2020s. And I think that's actually one of the extraordinary things that we've seen over the last few years is just how quickly things are changing. You know, we're living in that, in that time now and climate change is not something that's in the future. So we're already seeing people affected by, for example, Um, the effects of extreme heat. Now, obviously, heat, um, you know, Australia, just to take the example of Australia, it is a a nation of extremes. We do, you know, droughts and flooding rains and it's a sunburnt country and all of that stuff That's not in dispute here, but what we are seeing is those extremes are getting more and more extreme with climate change and more and more dangerous. So what that does in terms of sort of direct impacts and and events, so there's kind of two things to keep in mind here. We have those sort of extreme events that happen, discrete events that we can sort of say, oh, you know, remember, for example, black summer fires. But we also have a change in average. But if we're thinking about those direct events There's extreme heat, which is, um, you know, becoming more and more extreme. So um, heat waves are becoming more intense. They're becoming more prolonged. They're happening earlier, as we're seeing playing out right this week um, in southeastern Australia. So they're happening earlier in the season and they're happening more often. Interestingly, often when you have a a heat wave early in the season, you actually get a, a larger health effect than if you have one later in the season because there has not been that sort of slight adaptation that people manage to physiologically do and behaviourally do over the summer. So early heatwaves tend to affect more people adversely than late summer heatwaves. Uh, we also have, uh, you know, other extreme events such as, and again, you know, we don't have to look far to think about this, but the, the flooding events that we had uh, in Queensland and northern New South Wales not that long ago. So, you know, we've just come out of the, the a three-year La Nina event where we had... You know, significant rains, um, and then we went to back-to-back flooding events. For example, in Lismore, and the impacts that that's had not only on people's health, but and injuries, trauma, things like that, but particularly on the mental health impacts um, that have occurred. Uh, you know, that have been unfolding for people in in Lismore, but also you know, just the the, uh, the stresses in in the Brisbane floods, for example. You know, lot, many many displaced people, lots of uncertainty about where they might where they might be living. Uh, You know, we see that play out, you know, the financial stress that people are put under, particularly if their houses weren't insured Um, or, you know, the uncertainty that many people around the Lismore region are feeling at the moment about whether or not they'll be included in the buyback scheme, for example, uh, because where they were living is no longer considered livable. Um, And so we'll see that increasingly. Other acute events, I'm just going to bang on for ages about acute events and then I'll switch to the longer term (laughs) um, average changes. But, uh, you know, the black summer bushfires, for example, um, you know, we're we're facing probably this summer again, it's been suggested that we're going to be facing another catastrophic fire season. I don't know about everyone else, but it feels too soon. It's not that I would want to see this at any point, but it really feels like we haven't come anywhere near recovering from the black summer fires of our a few years ago. And that's something that we're seeing with climate change is that these are sorts of extreme events are happening more frequently. They're, they're multiple. They're kind of cascading, if you like. So we, we might have, you know, extreme heat followed by bushfires followed by floods. And you can have multiple sorts of these events happening across vast areas of the country at the same time. So previously, we would have shared resources, you know, say firefighting resources between New South Wales and Queensland. But if you've got the, you know, the entire East Coast on fire, that doesn't, you know, isn't something that we can necessarily do. So let's see. So there's, there are a number of the direct impacts. Um, Melissa, feel free to jump in if I've missed any along the way. Um, some of the less direct impacts are things like, you know, the potential for an in- for increase in vector-borne disease, for example. So when it's, uh, it's warmer and particularly if it's, if it's wetter, mosquito-borne pathogens get transmitted more easily. So in Australia of interest particularly is dengue fever up in the north, um, but we also have Ross River virus, which often follows flooding throughout uh, in the south as well. Uh, we do have malaria transmission sometimes, occasionally but it's not something that's currently seen as a significant issue for Australia but could very well become so. So that's vector-borne disease. Things like uh, other less direct impacts Uh, You know, if we think about the impacts of either extreme events or long term changes in rainfall and temperature in our ability to produce food, and that affects the affordability and the accessibility uh, to food, which means that, you know, uh, fresh produce becomes more expensive, and people may switch to um, more affordable and less nutritious food for example. So that's one of the things. It also, when it's hot, people don't want to move. So if you get, you know, increases in temperature, you know, there's going to be less physical activity uh, for people as well. And actually just on that, one thing we don't think about when we think about vulnerable people are the people who are actually having to work in those um, extreme environments. So in, in those higher temperatures, so outdoor workers, for example, but even when it's really extreme and say the building sites shut down and so on, there are still people working and they're our know, first responders, uh, for example, who who are actually responding to those you know, emergency calls as well. So they're actually at increased risk themselves. And just to circle back to even less direct impacts of climate change ones that are these are and these are the ones that are the hardest to quantify, the hardest to uh, really get a, a handle on the causal pathways, but are probably the ones that are going to cause the biggest impact in terms of people's health and well-being are things like conflict over resources, war, famine, population displacement, violence all of these things triggered by changing climate, both changing averages and also um, those increasing extremes as well. Um, also increases one i should have mentioned uh, potential increases in asthma and allergy and hay fever and i'm personally suffering from this very warm spring at the moment uh, with hay fever you know simply because uh, trees produce more pollen and earlier on in the season and it's more allergenic when it's produced in a in a um, a higher carbon environment and then so and then right down to those really more diffuse impacts the really widespread um you know definitely not local much more global um, problems of conflict, war, famine, displacement and violence.
1: That's a very teary
3: thing to end on. Sorry about that.
1: Hilary, that's an extraordinary framework to give us. And uh, I'm sure our listeners will think about this over our very short break. We will come back to, I think, assess further the way in which our policy response can help us to, to contend with the health impacts of climate change. So that's an extraordinary place for us to leave the conversation for just a few moments. <laughs> Listeners, welcome back. We're talking today with Professors Melissa Haswell and Hilary Bambrick about mining fossil fuel, the indirect health impacts and the direct health impacts that arise for communities and the resultant serious health impacts uh, globally of climate change. And we heard just before the break, uh, Professor Bambrick go through the extraordinary myriad of impacts for human health and well-being that we see through the changing climate. Hilary, I'd like to turn our attention now to the policy landscape and, of course, the policy landscape that covers health and climate change is rapidly changing. I know every year I'll give a lecture to a particular group here at ANU and every year I'm amazed by and I'm sometimes even delighted by the sorts of things that I can add in there in terms of policy around health and climate change There is, of course, now in Australia, a draft National Climate Change and Health Strategy, which is in circulation, and that we know will at least cover health sector mitigation activities. But I'm also aware that in the development of this strategy, there's been some tension between the narrow focus on reducing the carbon footprint of the healthcare sector and the broader potential scope of health and climate issues. And I think before the break, you've taken us through the ways in which health and climate change are so deeply intertwined, but across a myriad of policy areas. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on what the important points of climate change policy debate for health voices to participate in. Where where do you think the health argument should be across government?
3: Thanks, Anna Greta. Well, obviously the the health sector is a very important uh, both contributor to climate change and also, you know, needs to be able to respond to the health impacts of climate change. But I would like to say, well, I feel the need to say that uh, the health sector only deals with the really pointy end of the health and wellbeing impacts of climate change that we'll see. So only when people, well, when people die, uh, when people are close to dying, when people are very ill? Do they usually have, you know, an interaction with the healthcare system itself? And so m- the majority of what we need to do in terms of, prevent, uh, of population health is actually about preventing people from getting to that point in the first place. And most of that happens outside what's traditionally considered the, the health sector or the healthcare sector. So it doesn't happen at the doctor's. It happens, you know. Um, it might it might happen in how your city is designed, how your house is designed, you know. Whether you are employed and have access to, um, you know, a, a cool place to go. Whether you're mobile. Whether you, you know what the what the community looks like in terms of social cohesion. Do you have a neighbor who can come in and look in on you if you if you're older and immobile when the weather gets hot? You know, all of those things. That's all happens outside. The healthcare sector. So, if we were to only have a health um, a health strategy that focused on on health systems and and health services, it would actually be missing out on huge opportunities to to make the biggest differences uh, in terms of health and well being. So, we, we very much need to have a, a if you like a health in in all sectors, a health in all policies. Whenever we're looking at climate change. Because if we if we don't do that, and if we just say, "Oh, health belongs," you know, within those four walls at that hospital, or you know, in 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 the rate of response of ambulance callouts or things like that, then we're actually missing the point. It really that really is only dealing with the very acute pointy end of the health impacts of climate change. And in fact, if we don't deal with all the other with the broader side of things that contribute to the to health outcomes, then we're not going to be able to manage the massive sort of impact that it will have that will absolutely overwhelm the health system. So you, you you can't just look at health sector, health systems when we're thinking about health and climate change.
0: Melissa, Hilary's just kind of mapped some some different ways of, of thinking about some of these issues. And there are lots of different ways of thinking about and responding to the complex issues that we're discussing. Debates around the fossil fuel industry often focus on the economics first and foremost, You know, we often hear about local employment, regional economic gains, and of course those things are very real and important and immediate, particularly for local communities that are dependent on the industry. But I'd be really keen to hear your thoughts on how our focus shifts when we take a health or a public health lens. Does that allow us to think differently about a range of issues from health to housing?
2: I guess I say I I've, I've worked with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities for about 25 years now. And I often think that what I've learned about health through that experience has just it's just been enormous. So when we think about health from an Aboriginal point of view, they talk about it's it's they one of the definitions says health is not just the physical, but the social, emotional and spiritual Cultural well being of an individual, not so that they can be great and be a champion, but so that they can contribute back to the health and well being of their whole community. Now, I think if we were to take that, that concept of what really makes us well, what really gives us well being, it's not the way that we're living today. So, we're taking from not only other people in this generation, we've got inequality growing but we're also taking away from our children's future and their children's future. And I I think that people really need to start thinking about themselves in a different way in people who can be good ancestors. We are in the most critical time for their future. Yes, we've got these things right now. This is a taste of what what we do now will determine for them. And I think until we start thinking about future generations in our policies, in our decisions, in the things we export, in the things people make money on and transition to enabling the healing of what we've done to try and make things as good as we can to preserve that fresh, clean water as an absolute critical element that they will be suffering without if we don't protect that water. They need that food, they need that fertile land. They need us right now to be taking care of farmlands, to be taking care of potentially productive lands. We need to be looking where are the rains gonna shift because they're not gonna be where they are now today if we have a totally different climate. So we have to preserve as much farmland as we can. We have to heal soil that's been so degraded by our activities. We have to think about where we're living and how we're living. I'm here right now in, in, in the Northern Rivers, and I'm hearing stories. My my students and I are hearing just tragic stories about how the floods and the fires. It doesn't different places get hit by different things at different times. We know it's going to happen. We can't pretend it's a surprise. So we really need to be thinking about how do we enable safety for our children. I heard today there, in the last three or four years, especially with the floods, there are families now who are homeless. One moment they've got a job and they're just just able to, to eke out the rent. The next day they're in their cars without a home. And that's how children are being raised. So I think we've really got to think very, very differently and put people first, put health first. Put the children first. And only when we do that are we going to come close to, I mean, that's what we need to really address this problem. And that you learn from Aboriginal people, Torres Strait Islander people, family-oriented people. And we hear it from everyone when they really sit down and start to speak from their hearts. It's something we all share. We just need to learn how to speak from our hearts.
3: I, I totally 100% agree with what Melissa's been saying. And, and just to, to sort of note that Australia has been very backwards in terms of its legislation in enabling it to think about future generations. And, you know, this is an area in which, you know, we, we really need to see some movement, you know, whenever there's a sort of any kind of, you know, a decision's being made under an environmental act, that, that isn't something that's considered. Um, it's It's very narrow in scope. It's way out of date given what we know now about, you know, the impacts of some of these large, you know, fossil fuel development projects and so on. And I just want to point out that other countries have do manage to think about what future generations need and, you know, for example, Wales has um, a Wellbeing of Future Generations Act and they've had that for nearly a decade and that, that actually compels public agencies to consider the impacts of their decisions on the well-being of, of future generations of community, you know, to, to actually prevent problems um, for, that might occur, you know, to, to think much more broadly about what the consequences of those decisions will be in the longer term. And we really, really need something like that here in, in Australia, an overarching approach that actually says, you know, we know the decisions we make today affect people in the future. And, you know, some of those people are alive today, they're children and young people, and they're going to be much more, you know, disproportionately affected by climate change than, you know, any of us sitting here on this podcast. Um, So just by the nature of of how that will play out. So, you know, it it really is an urgent thing that we need to do to to actually start thinking about and, you know, uh, legislating for considering uh, the well-being of future generations.
1: I think both of you have just provided us with some really remarkable uh, shifts in our approach to shifts in the framework that we take into these complex problems. And I know uh, perhaps particularly in this week where the heat waves begin, that there's a real sense of growing disquiet amongst climate scientists and those who are working on the challenge of climate change. That as we go into summer, that this is the beginning of a few decades ahead, which will be... Unprecedented and challenges in ways that are sometimes hard to imagine. How urgent is the need for action? I wonder. What are your priorities for our federal government? And in particular, as we draw today's conversation to a close, I wonder how we can inspire hope along with the changes that are needed. Hilary, can we start with you?
3: Thanks, Anna That is a huge question. Um, <laughs> Cool how to inspire hope i think um, you know maybe just one key message is well you know we definitely need to be be looking at adaptation because you know climate change is here it's now we need to urgently figure out how we're going to respond and manage manage the changing climate both in the extremes and in the long-term average but i also really want to make the point that we can't adapt our way out of climate change you know what we really need to we can't drop the ball on mitigation we absolutely have to be doing everything Thing we can to reduce emissions urgently, to have realistic, you know, to have scientifically credible goals for reducing emissions and making sure that we actually hit those targets. And the longer we delay that, the harder and harder that becomes. So I guess um, back to your question about hope, because that isn't really about giving hope, it's a a call for action. Look, I I I think I have to be an eternal optimist myself, or I couldn't get out of bed every day working in this space. And and so I I do continue to have hope, but it's not a it's not a passive hope. It's very much an act of hope. And it's one that you know brings me to speaking with you today and to working in the area in which I'm working. But but one thing that does give me me hope in that space is the number of really um, dedicated young people and inspirational young people who are also working in this space. Make Making sure their voices are being heard you know the fact that we i i see that um we've we've come out of a a decade of uh, a policy vacuum at at federal level in this country and we've come out of that and i am seeing what what gives me hope is we are starting to see some action in this area i think i'm attending you know it feels like every second day i'm attending a meeting on you know um whether it's the the national climate risk assessment or it's the a national health strategy you know that there is a lot of stuff happening. So that has given me hope. Uh, but we need to do more and we need to do it quickly.
1: And Melissa, I'm aware that your report is one of the documents I find as a clarion call for action in terms of reducing uh, emissions and uh, and stopping f- a new development of fossil fuel industry. What is it that inspires hope for change from the work that you do?
2: Interesting today. So I'm with 18 students here um, and they're all young people and they all really really care a lot and we spent three days in a workshop which was actually a workshop about empowerment and that empowerment and we're talking about is actually for them to understand who they are who they're with and what they want for their future one of the things that's really difficult for them is watching watching gas, new gas and oil developments, watching coal mines still being approved. There are 116 projects in the pipeline. Like, why? Why is that? How can a government that almost talks about that in a bragging way suggest that they're for, for the people of Australia? But I think what I say to them is, look, Hope is something that feels good. <laughs> you get it from people who are with you. You get it from smiling, you get it from laughter. They've seen this already now with the Aboriginal people they've been talking to who laugh a lot despite the horrors of their that, that they see, the the suffering that they see around them, all the races, all those things that come up in their lives. But they laugh. And when they laugh, they laugh together and they share. They share a way of getting rid of that stuff and being together. So I, and I, I, one of the things I I say to every class that goes through to it's important to have hope because it's horrible not to have hope. So there's a lot of reasons to have active hope, like Hillary's just said, but it's going to be a hard road. So try and try and not have expectations about how it's gonna be, whether they're positive or negative ones. Cause that's where we really suffer a lot, because we have to get rid of things that we, we thought they would be a certain way. So trying to trying to to just maintain through their own actions, through their interrelationships with others, through listening to Aboriginal people and going, wow, you know, that's the world we want. And to recognize that they have power. They really do have power. These are people who are going to be taking us into a different way of doing things, a different way of making money that doesn't destroy the world. So I think that that's... And I, and, I, and calling the government to account. So I think we're doing a lot of great things here in Australia. Domestically, we're doing well export-wise, we are not doing well. (laughs) And I think we need to keep reminding ourselves that that's not the way we should be funding our lives. We should be exporting innovation, not gas and oil and coal.
1: It has been the most extraordinary discussion with the two of you today, looking from the perspective of understanding the fossil fuel industry and the way in which it impacts on the environment and the health and well-being of communities and into the global issues that face us today and into our future. Thank you so much for the time and generosity with your wisdom,
2: Hillary and Melissa.
0: Thank you, thanks everyone.
2: Thanks, thanks all. Thanks Anna Greta. <laughs>
0: Anna Greta, what an extraordinary conversation that was. And I must say, as I was listening to Melissa and, and also to Hilary talking about the importance of thinking about future generations, I went back to the conversation that we had about the intergenerational report, and it really struck me that that kind of intergenerational thinking that we're doing could look very different if we used the kind of lens that we were talking about today, so that we're taking account not just of our future economic wellbeing, but of our wellbeing much more broadly, um, and also thinking about some of those beautiful points that Melissa made about the need for healing.
1: Absolutely, and I uh, like you, Sharon. I think what we heard from today's conversation is actually the power of taking a, that broader wellbeing lens across the complex problems and policy choices that we that we are faced with at this unprecedented moment in our human existence. Uh, and I use that well-being phrase rather than health lens specifically because it's not about diseases and their treatment it's very much about the life that we lead about the the that beautiful story that that Melissa told at the end of the importance of love and laughter and joy and connection the, the sorts of elements of care connection and contribution that have come up on on so many of the conversations we've had for the last couple of years but the power of taking that framework of understanding the human condition, of what it is that that creates an environment in which we thrive, and the way in which that helps us to guide the decision-making in a complex policy world. And, and by this and today's conversation, talking about the transition away from the burning of fossil fuels and the potential benefits there, uh, the way in which we can become good ancestors for the, for the generations to come afterwards. And our ancestors that began the journey learning from deep Indigenous, very old knowledge of understanding that the health of people and the health of the place are so deeply interconnected. These are inspiring moments for, for us in terms of what the future might look like. I know many people listening to this podcast, particularly those of us living in Australia, we're looking toward an unprecedented summer, a summer where the health impacts of climate change will again be shown to us. And there is really an opportunity for hope here in changing the way in which we we approach problems and the way in which we celebrate our human connection. It, It may even be that valuing care is a good way to approach the challenge. Listeners, this podcast is produced by the ANU Crawford School of Public Policy and we'll leave a link to the publications and the sources that we've discussed on the Crawford LinkedIn account. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe to keep up to date with future episodes. And if you're feeling generous, you can leave us a review. We'd love to hear from our listeners and it's the best way for other people to find out about our
0: podcast. So please do reach out to us on Twitter at ANU Crawford or through email policyforumpod at amu.edu.au. Our thanks as always to Hannah Scott for production and Darcy Brompton and Alex Jackson for background research. That's all we have time for this week. So from me, Sharon Bessel, it's bye-bye for now.
1: And from me, Anagreta Hunter, we'll see you next week.